think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 77 of Boys in Short Pants, the 78th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Nathan Rainbow. And uh, we have a special guest with us to talk about a very special topic, uh, near and dear to all of our hearts, uh, which is the Senate. Uh, and for that, we have with us Mr. Chris Reed today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So you've been working the Senate for quite a long time, over, over a decade? Yeah, it'll be, not counting a year over in the House, it'll be 16 years in August. That's that's a very long time for, for anyone on the Hill, frankly. That is much longer than most senators at this point, I think, too. <laughs> <laughs> With the exception of the Cretchen appointments, I've been there for every single senator's appointment. Wow. That, that is a pretty good run. So yeah. that is a, a fairly good historical perspective, I suppose, within the frame of the last two, two or so decades. Um, so without much further ado, Tim, do you want to lead us into to where you wanted to go? So I, I think we were hoping to have sort of a, a wide-ranging conversation on the Senate, starting with sort of why there has been so much emphasis in the media on the Senate lately. And I think it all stems back to Trudeau's reforms of the Senate um, prior to beco- becoming elected prime minister, as well as afterwards, yeah. sort of the new ISG model, which stands for the Independent Senators Group. Um, and I guess you've had a, a front hand or a first hand experience with that in a front row seat. Um, so do you want to walk us through sort of what Trudeau changed and sort of where that's led us to today? Can I actually can I actually throw out something first? It's also discussing a little bit of how it was done before, okay. like how it traditionally Senate appointments have been done. Well, the, basically, traditionally senators were appointed by the governor general on the recommendation of a sitting prime minister. Uh, they had a link uh, to the party in power. Uh, you know, examples abound of bag men. You know, I spent three, four years working for Irving Gerstein, the probably the biggest bag man in the country. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there was also on the liberal side, there were a bunch of bag men, Leo Kolber, uh, others. But prime ministers also used their prerogative to recommend people like Frank Mahovlich or Jacques Demers. You know, the Canadians from all walks of life. The idea was that these were people who were invested into an industry or their community or organizations that they had a, a stake in Canada. And that was the original concept, at least in my my opinion. And indeed, the original concept of the Senate was people explicitly who had a stake in yeah. Canada in the form of owning land. Yeah, uh, yeah. the, the $4,000. Everybody likes talking <laughs> oh, about yes, $4,000, but... Uh, you <laughs> Not know, a significant in, now, in, in, in today's, you know, yeah. try finding a piece of property for $4,000. I actually heard that there was a recent appointment in Quebec where they have to do uh, appointments by sort of division, administrative division within the province. Mm-hmm. And I think there has been now the same, like, about $4,000 parcel of land, yes. land passed down by two so, senators. Yes, there, there's... Um, I think it's a part parking lot in a legion or something uh but it's there's notorious stories uh i'm not sure if they're all true or if they're all just anecdote but the yes in quebec there are 24 what they call senatorial districts and they were set out uh, they're set out in the constitution act of 1867 yeah they were regions they were the original 24 legislative councillors for the legislative council of then the province of canada Mm -hmm. Uh, and they just kept them the the ironic part is they basically go from Ottawa to Quebec City and the Gaspé, and that's about it. So it's just along the uh, St. Lawrence River. The, yeah. So there's nothing for northern Quebec. Hmm. There's no, you know, for the Cree that live there or the um, Inuk. Inuk, Inuk yeah. yes. And uh, Charlie Watt, who famously was appointed right. from Inkerman, which is a, a not far from Montreal. I don't believe, I, I think. Ironically, he's from northern Quebec, and he's I knew, and it was just it was a funny, it's just a funny quirk of the constitution. I actually didn't know that. I, I, I didn't, didn't know that either. Yeah. So, uh, I guess no one ever leans on their senator to really represent their in, uh, interests like, <laughs> in sort of the same way people do with MPs. But just constitutionally, no one represents northern Quebec or large yeah. large swaths of northern Quebec uh, in the Senate. That's Interesting. Have any senators sort of ever informally taken up that cause? I imagine it's sort of an, on an ad hoc basis. Yeah, it's on an ad hoc basis. And getting back to the property, and a number of senators, there's actually a, a motion on the order paper to get rid of the property qualification. And it's moved by, it was moved by Senator Patterson, conservative from Nunavut. Uh, he is the former uh, premier of the Northwest Territories when they were merged. Uh, he was the MLA for then Frobisher Bay, now Iqaluit. 
And the interesting thing is he's approaching it from an indigenous perspective, although he himself is not indigenous. Uh, he's approaching it from the fact that a in a lot of in traditional indigenous communities, property ownership and land ownership is not, uh, you know, yeah. a, a custom. That's very much a European concept. Yeah, and explicitly the reserve system doesn't really allow for it. Yeah, so that uh, <laughs> famously, um, Jerry Butts, his aunt was a senator. Peggy Butts from Cape Breton. She was a nun. So, so the story goes, she had a vial of poverty and the Sisters of Charity signed over a portion of the convent where she was living in so she would qualify for a Senate seat. <laughs> Whether or not, you know, these are the stories that are passed between sure. staffers and things through the I've ages. I that actually. Though it's actually very odd that sitting Catholic clergy, well, she's not really clergy in the same way, but that, that is actually a really interesting one. I'm sure that gave the canon lawyers a bit of a head scratcher. <laughs> Not not just that. I'm sure the uh, the clerks in the Senate when they <laughs> took to, to when they went to go do the property roll and who pays it because to prove that you own the property. Now, granted, a lot of these reforms in terms of what we do now in terms of in guaranteeing senators own the property is post 2013. It is post the the this Senate spending scandals and mm -hmm. and uh, proving you know residencies and of certain senators in Prince Edward Islanders, Saskatchewan, <laughs> and such. Certain, uh, certain the. So now they insist on copies of your health card, your income tax rule, your property tax rule. And it is a measure of accountability. And I must say, in the years since that scandal, um, first under, I have, to, I have to give a lot of credit to former speaker, uh, passed away Senator Nolay, as well yeah. as uh, sitting Senator Britain, former speaker and former chair of internal economy, Leo Hosakos, uh, in what they've done to move that, that yardstick in terms of the accountability and tightening up the rules. Obviously, the best rules always in, are always based on the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. And anybody, you know, in some ways, rules are deliberately written in a way that there is some wiggle room because circumstances are always exceptional, but honorable people will act honorably. And, and, and I'm not saying, suggesting that senators, no senators did that, but, you know, the, that's, the rules were probably not acceptable in what people in a 21st century yeah would, would expect expect, in yeah. terms of due diligence mm -hmm. and yeah absolutely to to bring us back to the isg so trudeau famously um well third party leader basically threw out the liberal caucus yes uh threw them to the woods and said you are no longer big l liberals yeah well and what he did specifically was that the national liberal caucus which would all meet in a big caucus room mm -hmm. on wednesday mornings uh would previously included uh, the liberal senators and what Trudeau did was say you were no longer part of the national liberal caucus. They were permitted to be big uh, liberal yes. party members and everything and participate in, in the you know the internal life of the party, but not as well, members of the, of the national caucus. But yes, yes and no, he took it one step further. He took away their ex officio status at conventions and yes, stuff by amending the liberal party convention. So members like any other. So yes, the, and, and any. Any parliamentarian can be a member of any party. It's up to the internal party rules to determine who is a party member and mm -hmm. what qualifies as a party member. The The trick with the Liberals, and this was in January of 2014 or maybe April of 2014. I always get January 2014 and April 2014 confused because 2014 was a big year for the Senate. Um, <laughs> sure not was. only was uh, <laughs> the decision by then third party leader Justin Trudeau to... Uh, remove the Liberal senators from the National Caucus and yeah. the official party apparatus, but as well, that's when the Supreme Court reference uh, mm -hmm. was handed down on on whether or not you know the, the Alberta model, the consultative elections, as well yeah. as okay, what what does it take to actually abolish the place if we right. want to go to that route? So, but the interesting thing about the what is now the Independent Senate Liberal Caucus is they immediately met, decided to call themselves the Independent Senate Liberals. Yeah wrote to the speaker insisting that they were still liberals. And the rules at the time said that if you were a group of five senators who were members of a registered political party or had had been registered within the last 10 years, mm. uh, and you never dropped below five in the, that period, you could still be a caucus. There was some question over whether they could till, still take the role of official opposite, like opposition in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And this, at the time, Speaker Kinsella ruled that they could. And, and that was the bipolar model. Now, and fast forward to 2016, you know, the, the Prime Minister is uh, in office for a few months. He's announced that he's setting up an independent uh, commission, which is quite interesting because he has three federal members. 
Um, the chair, as well as two others, the chair is a former uh, chancellor of the University of Ottawa and former um, high-ranking bureaucrat, Huguette uh, Labelle. Uh, and then for each province that there was a vacancy, he would appoint two provincial uh, members, mm-hmm. hopefully with consultation from the provincial governments, but not all provincial governments, obviously, were going to play ball. And I think uh, at the time, it was still a PC government in, in Alberta. They they didn't, uh, or maybe even maybe even it was Nolly, but again, NDP government didn't believe in the Senate. So Yeah. I remember they, for Alberta in particular, they appointed the former president of the University of Alberta. Yes. Some, mm-hmm. some questionable spending scandals of her own, <laughs> but such such, as such and such. Yeah. So the interesting though is that that model, that five person committee with the two people from the province, is the same model that Prime Minister Harper had set up for the Vice Regal's Appointments Commission, and this is the that's the Vice Regal Commission that led to the appointment of somebody like David Johnson to the Governor General, who served seven well well ably years for in. In Rideau Hall, and I, I would dare to say, elevated the office of the Governor General to to a height that hasn't been seen since you know probably the 30s or four the pre-war time when there was much more deference to the monarchy and, and to the the role. The interesting thing is though, the first batch of senators that Trudeau appointed, which included Murray Sinclair, Peter Harder, and such, were not vetted by this group. Interesting. They were picked by PMO. Uh, all. All eminently qualified Canadians in their right and in their field, they're still finding their feet. They may not prove out to be eminently qualified senators, but that's a different story, and we'll see how that all plays out. In essence, his one commitment was that these senators would not be affiliated to any party, any political party. Again, you can't take away a person's right. They may join a party. They may not participate. That's up to them. But the biggest debate we've had on that is, are they independent or are they not affiliated? Because in theory, every senator receives their appointment, their summons from the governor general. And it says to consider all weighty and arduous affairs that may be laid before parliament. So, and there's no recall, there's no punishment at the ballot box. So in, in theory, all senators are independent because they've received their commission from the crown. So we have a term called unaffiliated. Yes. Mm-hmm. So if you don't belong to a caucus, i.e. the Independent Senators Group or the Conservative Party of Canada Senate Caucus or the Independent Senate Liberals, you sit as an un- unaffiliated. There are a handful of those, including the three government representative office, because they, although there are three and they represent the government in the Senate, they do not qualify under Senate rules to be a caucus or a group. Yeah. Speaking of how we define caucus now or group, a recognized party or recognized parliamentary group is any group that consists of nine or more senators. Right. They can be together for administrative purpose, like the ISG is, or political partisan purposes, like the Conservative Party caucus, or just Maybe they share anything. or they yeah. share similar ideas, ideology, like the independent senate levels. And the nine, the nine threshold was sort of pers- was that that's recent, right? That was sort of that's recent. That's in senate 2017, 2018, I think. It yeah. went first through the Senate Modernization Committee, and I think that's more of an apt word than reform, because uh, reform, at least for me, denotes that we're looking at the Constitution and we're opening things up. Yeah. Modernization allows us to work within the Constitution and, and within the framework that has been set out by the Supreme Court in its reference. Although, again, it is only a reference, so we, it's not a binding judgment, but it's you know a good set of guidelines. Yeah. When doing the work, the, the Senate struck a committee on, on Senate reform and did so even before the independent senators were largely there. There were a handful, uh, Elaine McCoy and such, that were appointed. Actually, she was appointed as a progressive conservative by Paul Martin in 2005, I think it was. Uh, former uh, Albertan cabinet minister under the Lougheed government, uh, but she did not feel that she should sit under the Tories or the Liberals and their whip, so she sat as an independent. And she was a member of the committee. And they looked at... The old rule was five, but then conceivably if you had groups of five, you could have up to 20, 21 groups in the Senate because there's 105 members. Well, that would be slightly unworkable for who gets committee seats, who doesn't, and such. So the threshold was raised to nine. 
because they, they quite rightly took the 105, took away the leaderships, so the, the three government leadership, the three opposition leadership, the speaker and deputy speaker, and you're, you're now down under 100, and they said, okay, you're in the 90s, so let's say 10, and we always usually have a few vacancies, we're rarely always full up, mm-hmm. so assume a, around 90 active senators on committees and such, so then that's why we ten percent. Yeah, yeah. It's basically easy to purport uh, to apportion seats. Yes, yeah. yeah. If, if, if it's it all similar to yeah. Yeah. yeah, which would be one person. Mm-hmm. That would be a very interesting phenomenon if we had about ten equal sized groups in uh, in the Senate. But so that's something we've discussed is that the ISG to date has remained as a reasonably homogenous group. Homogenous insofar as they accept the title of yeah, let's ISG. say stable yes. and relatively cohesive, if not coherent. Sure, um, and they haven't broken into issue no. caucuses. They haven't they haven't delineated themselves any further yeah. than that. New Brunswick Senator Senator David Adams Richards left uh, yes. the ISG, wanted to be more independent, uh, which was uh, <laughs> very funny. But uh, he's a an author uh, who's who's well known in New Brunswick and the Maritimes. I think less well known perhaps outside. But uh, yes, the independent streak definitely is. Uh, the interesting thing about the ISG is it is an independent group. As you know, the prime minister exercising his prerogative has appointed majority of senators who share a center left view, like the prime minister does. And, they may not carry a, a party membership, whether that be liberal, NDP, you know, they, it, but the way they view the world is very much in keeping with the prime minister sure. and, and his, and his policies. Many of their backgrounds too have noticed very different than, than previous generations of senators where it's, it's actually, I, from what I've seen, largely drawn from the nonprofit academic, um, world and, and some, you know, authors yes. and kind of thing. So arts, academia, nonprofits, where I think in previous generations have been really mostly, business politics law uh mixed in with some i mean it depends how you define politics right well, because sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. there have been people uh plumber for instance yes um who have been heavily involved in political parties but their actual trade throughout their life has been very much the blue collar rules yeah and i can't think of a single senator appointed through sort of the isg process that would fall into that category uh, the hot dog vendor on Bank infamously applied for the Senate, but famously, yes. I don't, I don't know. Well, it's infamous here. <laughs> sure, famously, um, but was rejected. So we're seeing sort of these preeminent Canadians, yes. with sort of a, a liberal worldview, be appointed to the Senate. Yeah, well, yes, days. and and um, you know, when you, when you speak of eminent Canadians, I think the number of Order of Canada or Provincial Order recipients has grown uh, significantly. But it, but at the same time, the Prime Minister has quite rightly brought forward a number of indigenous senators who yeah. were traditionally unrepresented mm-hmm. in parliament uh, for various reasons, uh, whether it's nominations or party mechanics or, or just a simple apathy. It, it, there's, there's various reasons, which is great. Um, and we we're also, I'm pretty sure, at 50% uh, in terms of the gender equality, which is also very good. We're we're miles ahead of the house. Traditionally, we've been around thirty-five to forty, uh, still higher still than the house. But uh, you know, we're <laughs> getting even. even yes, yeah, much the, the idea behind well, the idea behind the appointment system was that you would get people that may not have traditionally uh, sought office or, or would have been victorious in a, an election campaign for whatever reason. Uh, you know, it's the 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 trick though is. As you pointed out, there's people without political backgrounds. And the Senate, and I would suggest mostly the independent senators group, because they have in their mindset that politics is partisan. Mm -hmm. They have this mindset and they are in a crisis of conscience almost that they feel that politics is not what they're there for, but it is still a political institution. We are still, you are still going to look at every piece of legislation or business before the chamber within your worldview, whether or not you belong to a big, like in my case, big C party membership, or you still going to have a small, like I have a small C conservative view. Uh, That's always going to be the way I see the world. Uh, So I will always approach it. And I think the sentence, the new senators, some of them get it, uh, and it's not that they the others have an aversion or they just they're. It's so ingrained 
when you look at the theatrics of Parliament, particularly when you look at the House of Commons, it's just so much... It's all for the party. It's all the electoral uh, machinations. The Senate's not not bound by elections, obviously. The, your appointment for till age 75. So you have that independence away from electoral considerations, as the Supreme Court pointed out. But it's still politics. And, and a lot of them, because of of that view or because they might have come from from some academia circles or nonprofit circles where they were the big fish mm-hmm. when they're all suddenly all equal you know, things work differently some adjustments yeah. yeah yeah so in this particular session of parliament uh, I think there were more stories than you typically see I, I don't necessarily have the same time frame of perspective that you do um, but particularly in the last year or so there have been a lot of stories about uh, a lot more lobbying of senators, mm-hmm. uh, how senators, particularly ISG senators, are adjusting to the role of being lobbied, whether or not you know they, they think lobbying is a dirty word or whether or not um, how, how they understand lobbying within the policy capacity. I'll, I'll put that to one side. And, and then the other half of it has sort of been whether or not the Senate is being a house of sober second thought or whether or not it's unnecessarily delaying legislation. And depending on who you talk to across Ottawa, you'll get a, a ton of different views. So to pick a few pieces of legislation out of a hat, uh, a lot of the legislation seemed to go into the Senate, um, I would say, in fall, or not fall, but uh, end of uh, sitting last year, and sit with the Senate until almost, for almost one entire year. And then a huge chunk of legislation, almost 20, 22 bills, were passed in the final two weeks. And a lot of those bills got through committee, report stage, third reading, whatever ping pong, in like the last little bit. So is that typical of the Senate? Or was there sort of internal deliberations that were going on as to how to approach all of these bills? Generally, the question, I guess, is... How do you make out how the Senate worked legislatively this session? I think the Senate did very well legislatively. Uh, people often talk about the delays in the Senate because they're used to the House of Commons, where things are programmed, people understand when debates are happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Senate's debate is much more organic uh, in nature. It's not scheduled, unless... You know, there's we, we we did experiment with scheduling and thematic uh, breakdowns, both with C14, the assisted uh, assisted death, uh, medical assistance in dying, sorry, and as well as um, C44, C45, uh, 45, which yeah. is the cannabis um, legislation. However, that said, everybody's used to the spectacle that is the House of Commons. The sponsors, the, the minister rises gives their speech at second reading, takes a few minutes of questions and comments, sits down. Then the the representative of the official opposition gets up, gives their 10-minute speech, which is written well before the minister, so it's not actually (laughs) responding to the minister. Uh, And then so on, we go down the the benches. In the Senate, um, it could be days if weeks between when the sponsor speaks and the critic or responder um, responds. Simply because the well, the idea is versus sometimes the practice is that senators will take that time to digest, hear what was said, and respond in kind. And I think if you check the Hansard, you'll see that most senators are trying to respond. The other aspect, though, in terms of what led to a lot of the delay is we've had more senators speak than we traditionally do. In the traditional bipolar caucus method that we had, uh, prior to the the advent of the independent senators, was you know you had conservatives, you had liberal. Uh, sorry, NDP, you just never were in power, <laughs> so you never got to appoint senators. I think there's one person who wanted to sit. I think it was Lillian Senator Lillian did yeah. as a, an NDP senator, and the party would not let her. So and so, uh, about choice. twelve or thirteen years ago, an email got leaked from Layton's office. It was sent accidentally to all conservative staffers oh, on the distribution <laughs> list about <laughs> whether sure whether or not there was going to be a vote at the national caucus to bring her in. Um, since it's so long ago, I don't mind telling that little story <laughs> out of school. Uh, but the you had you you had your you, you had your sponsor, and you had your 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 critic. And because 
you were part of a caucus, a political caucus, partisan that, caucus. That person was speaking. That person for. was speaking on behalf of the caucus. Mm-hmm. But when you have an independent group that is together primarily for administrative purposes, yeah. again, most of them all share a very similar worldview. There are a handful that don't, uh, including my boss, who is a Harper appointment and is now part of the independent senators group. They all want to get up and say a slightly different version of the same speech. <laughs> and not that that's necessarily bad, because they do have something to add. They, they, they may have worked in that field. They may have experience. But because there's no more speeches on behalf of the group, there's a lot of more, a lot more, I'm going to, you know, Speak for the sake of adding, adding one's my, own voice you know, and yeah, one's sure. own thoughts. And sometimes, you know, so the the veteran staffers were sitting there going, "Really? Again? <laughs> You're just changing the to that or something?" But that has led, in a lot of ways, to the the length of time it's taken for debate, right? Because, mm-hmm. as I say, in the old bipolar method, you had one speech maybe on a Tuesday, and then the critic responded the next week. By the end of the week, it'd be off to committee and, you know, Bob's your uncle, we move on. But first thing is, we've now been having a lot of speeches at second and third reading, which has delayed the next stages of the legislation. Not necessarily unduly because we still managed to pass all government or deal with all government legislation before the the Senate rose uh, for the summer. In terms of the other thing to remember, unlike the House of Commons, is committees can't meet when the Senate meets. The Senate takes priority. So if the, if, and this, we, we ran into this with, with one particular bill, 262, a uh, private member's bill to implement uh, the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Persons. Whatever your views on the bill, whatever your listeners feel on the bill, the procedures of the Senate are that a committee, unless it has special authority, cannot meet while the Senate is sitting. To give so that senators who may be interested in something in committee or maybe members of the committee aren't basically running sure. to two, between two places. We only have 105 members, unlike the 338 in the House. So sure. time is and much a, more valuable. A comparable number of committees, generally. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the whether you agree with what went on in the Senate chamber in terms of how long this, the sittings uh, elapsed or went through their their order papers. Uh, at the end of the day, the unless it's government legislation, there's almost no exceptions given for committees to meet. You know, I, I can count on probably one hand the handful of times that if it wasn't a government bill to meet with a minister because the minister was only available at a certain time. So we don't want to retard the bill. So let's have the minister appear and let the committee meet while the Senate's sitting. I. Famously, one time we allowed it was when the Dalai Lama came to appear before the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. Well, His Holiness was only available at a certain time, so we allowed the Foreign Affairs Committee. So you have to sit in the lobby, have a coffee. Yeah, so, but the Senate still sits, which is really interesting because then there, because there is still business before the Senate. And we structure the order paper very much that the front end is loaded up with government bills, government legislation. Um, We make there is either there is two types of business. There's government business and other business. Uh, and then we, we've made strides in terms of organizing the order paper. It used to be organized by how many days it's been on the order paper and have not been spoken to. So you may have, say, an example, Bill C-2, come after Bill C-5 because Bill C-5 Five wasn't spoken to as recently as C2. So C5 goes up higher on the order paper because it hasn't been spoken to. But we've changed it so that it's now completely in the order of the bill number okay. or and the motion number or the committee report number that as they appear onto the order paper, just to make it a little easier. So if you're looking for bill, say C5, you're, you're going one, two, three, four, five. You're not going, well, why is it number 12? And not five, because you know, the 11 items before it had been spoken to, not as recently as five because it used to be if you spoke to an item it dropped to the end of the order paper mm-hmm. and you had to wait for it to come back up so one question about the sittings is it's often observed about the house of commons that no one is ever there <laughs> yeah. um I, you know you go and you you bring guests in and mm-hmm. for for you know 
say that there, there's debate on a private member's bill that people feel strongly about or emotion or something, you bring people as, as guests to come watch it, and they're, they're shocked that there are maybe 15 people in the chamber. Is the Senate, when it's actually debating, pretty well attended? Are most senators there, or are people kind of filtering in and out as well? It depends. Uh, senators are uh, public officials, like members of parliament are. They, they'll they be meeting with lobbyists, they'll be meeting with stakeholders, or, or you know... Although they don't technically have constituents in the traditional sense, there might be a group from their home province that's in town that they may want to meet with, or and and that that's so there's still going to be that public business going on. But I would I would argue, having been in both chambers for a time, uh, that the Senate is much more well attended. I would also mm-hmm. point out that the senators have a mandatory attendance policy. Of course, the names of all senators appear in the journals of each day at, at two places. Once. At the beginning, so the the senators that were there when the sitting began, the con- convening of the Senate, and then any senators who came kind of through the day. Because they may miss the prayers, but they may come in later for another debate. Sure. So I would say out of 105 senators, on average, we're, I would say 60 to 70% of the Senate is there. Okay. Of course, the closer you get to break weeks, and, or if committees are traveling, or... The other thing is, you know, on average, senators are older than members of parliament. So there are other complications, com- health yeah. and all these other stuff. The other thing, too, is senators are allotted a certain amount of days for public business. If they don't take if they, you know, ex- uh, exhaust those, then there's a fine for not being in the chamber right. for each day. Yeah, it's something like two hundred dollars a day. So, you know, if you weren't there a lot or you didn't have a medical reason or something, you you could, you basically get 21 vacation days and, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. So all of, one of the things you alluded to is sort of the scheduling of the Senate, um, which is, I mean, in both the House of Commons and the Senate, it's somewhat of a cooperative process. Um, but do you want to tell us like what the scroll is and how, how this works? Because honestly, coming, <laughs> come, having had little interaction with the Senate, um, this is part of what mystifies me about the Senate. It's where I'm still somewhat unclear on their procedure. Okay, so the, the scroll essentially is a legal-sized version of the order paper uh, with more details. So if you look up the Senate order paper, everything you see in the order paper is a reproduction of what's called the, the, the Speaker's scroll. Now, there are, not unlike in the House of Commons when the House leaders meet and they, they kind of figure out the business for the, the week or the day, there is morning meetings of senators. I, I spent five years with, for all intents and purposes, the, the House leader in the Senate. The, the deputy leader of the government in the Senate at the time was Senator Como from uh, Digby, Nova Scotia, and working with Marjorie the Brighton. His, his duty was to plan out the day's speeches. But the thing with the order paper is we print the entire order paper every day. It's not a set expected orders, or right. and, and we don't publish which speeches senators have indicated they're going to be speaking to that day. They, they may indicate to their leadership or, or their facilitatorship ahead of time, but it preserves the rights of any senators. When the table calls government bills, number one, second reading of bill C2, any senator could shoot up and make their speech. Uh, and we do that. So the way it's broken down is we'll, we'll have our statements Unlike um, statement, unlike SO31s or statements by members, there's not a set. It's it is kind of a set time because it's the first 15 minutes of the sitting. It's 15 minutes total, three minutes each. You get about five, sometimes six, if people are a little short, right? And then we go through routine proceedings, which is tabling of documents, uh, present presentation of reports and committees, notices of inquiry, introduction first introduction first reading of bills. Could be government bills, could be private bills, could be. Uh, Senate public bills. We have three classifications of bills. We have government bills, public bills, and private bills. Private bills are things like um, there was one that unfortunately died on the order paper, which had to do with changing the Board of Governors for Girl Guides Canada, because they were originally incorporated right. by an Act of Parliament right. back sure. in the 1900s. So then, once you get out of routine, our routine proceedings, we then have a 30-minute question period. There has been an advent. Uh, now that there's no minister resident in the in the Senate, uh, the government point man, Senator Harder, has styled himself government representative in the Senate. Legally, he is still leader of the government in the Senate. They never updated the law. Sure. And we can talk about the Parliament of Canada Act later, but there's <laughs> there's that's a whole other kettle of fish. The 
And then, so we've had this new question period on Tuesdays where it's at a set time at 3.30 to 3.410, we bring in a minister. And basically, it's whoever the government offers up. You know, I'm sure the parties <laughs> ask for certain ones, but, you know, it's no disrespect to, you know, uh, Minister Wilkinson, but not everybody was going to want to talk about fisheries. You know, we would probably like to have gotten somebody like Minister Freeland a lot more often or Minister Morneau a lot more sure. often than... And, you know, maybe, hey, we would have been nice to have the Prime Minister at one point, but that never happened. Not a single time. Not a single time. To this day, the only time a Prime Minister has appeared before, a sitting Prime Minister has appeared before the Senate was in 2007 at the Special Senate Committee on Special on Senate Reform, chaired by then uh, Senator Dan Hayes. And it was to deal with Bill S-4, which was the first attempt at the Harper government to legislate term limits for senators. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, it was the, the proposal was eight years. And, so, and Prime Minister Harper appeared as the first witness at the committee because the committee was seized with the government's bill and their first initiative in Senate reform. Uh, and then when we get out of question period, then we get into our, 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 di- our daily, our day's business. On question period, ver- uh, very quickly... Have you found that the ministerial responses to senators is substantively different than the way they answer questions in question period? Is it a more wholesome response? Is it less discursive? <laughs> no. I, I think I think it I think it depends on on the on the minister in a lot of ways because I think it's easier. I would argue it's easier to predict what the questions in the house are going to be because sure. you you. You know, I you look at the newspaper. I did issues. Ma- I did issues out. management yeah. for a cabinet minister. You know, you do the issues management call in the morning. You check, you do the media scans. You look at your portfolio and you figure, okay, what's coming up. But in the Senate, because senators are there for much longer, usually they're not. You know, they're not a one term or two term. They're they're there for a while. So they have their pet projects. They have their special interests. They have things that that to most some Canadians would be completely obscure, and. You know, if the minister, this is their time with the minister, so they may grab them on something. And uh, so you'll see if the minister is well briefed and knows the file, then yeah, I would argue that there is probably a more fulsome response. There's also not the 30 second time limit, right? Which assists in that. Um, But also, until recently, we we weren't filmed. Now we are, which is a new dynamic, but. We're still new at it, so I don't think it, it, it's leached into the idea of the grandstanding or the soapboxing yet, but it might. And I hope it doesn't, because that's the, the value of the Senate is that it does not grandstand. It's not there for the soapbox. But. Following following that train of thought very quickly, um, I guess the, the grandstanding and the, the introduction of television, or uh, cameras rather, to the House of Commons is... You know, d- depending on who you are, has been mm-hmm. criticized as a point, as as a low point for the House of Commons because it leads into to uh, because it leads to the grandstanding, and in the modern era, it's the clipping for social media. Absolutely. Do senators build themselves out social media profile uh, presences in the same way that MPs do? The the first one that comes to mind is Senator Paul Simons, former journalist. Absolutely. Has done the live tweeting of her thoughts and feelings as she's going through sort of the legislative process. Um, in the Senate and figuring out Senate procedure as she goes. Um, but are there senators who try and build themselves up and style themselves as MPs or in a manner? In a, in a manner. Um, it also depends on what this, the senator did before they got there. There are a number of senators who were former members of parliament. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, when I was with Senator Como, uh, because he used to be the member for Southwest Nova, uh, a lot of times he would still go do outreach on break weeks. He'd go to the local Tim Hortons for half a day and basically <laughs> chat with everybody. Um, but when it comes to the social media, I don't think there is the presence like members of parliament are. Some because there's not, again there's not the electoral aspect to it. You know, there's not the outreach. There's not the you know some some members of parliament are tweeting about the fact that they went to a letter opening. You know, because it, it's something in the community they never you know. They never miss something in the community. Sure. Senators are very active on social media, but I think in different ways. It's almost, it's very interesting. I would liken it to senators trying to take the, it's almost like they're continuing the debate that was taking place in the chamber, but bringing it out. Because 
because we there's no elections and let's be honest viewership is fairly low on what? senate webcasting what? and you know there's a lot more media interest in the senate now yeah but it's not always the case so a lot of the senators are trying to drive the interest and one of the platforms is social media whether that Absolutely. be twitter facebook instagram the senate has actually done Itself as an institution has has, overhaul yeah, has, has done amazing, amazing yeah. work and hosted uh, a, a Twitter cafe, I believe, a couple of years ago, the Sir John A. Macdonald building. And they have their set of hashtags for their committees. Uh, everything's gone out and by, uh, by, bilingually. Yeah. They tweet out about uh, votes and real-time vote yeah. results. They put flashcards up, uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, with images of what, what a with a brief synopsis about what a bill is. and So, so it allows, it makes the Senate more accessible to Canadians. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, some senators are not on social media and that's their choice. And, you know, social media is a double-edged sword, as we all know. Mm-hmm. It, you may have the best of intentions on social media and you may think you're, you know, you're being purer than the driven snow, but <laughs> somebody's going to find a fault with you and bring on the trolls. Yeah. So one thing I think just to, to address, I think, some of the the sort of comments about the House of Commons being you know, grandstanding so like, which, like, look, it is. Uh, I don't think anyone would really say otherwise. I do think, though, that I think the analysis of, the pro- of that as a problem, I think, comes from a place where there's an expectation. And, you know, not, not from you, but just, I think, from, from commentators from the public more broadly, that the House of Commons should be a place where consensus is made. When that is not really the role of the House of Commons at all, the House of the role of the House of Commons is to debate the government's plans, is for the opposition to mm-hmm. object to them and present alternatives. Right? It's not a place for everyone to come and agree on things. And I think that there's a, and this analysis of the House of Commons is shouty and grandsteady comes from a place where people are expecting to see consensus being made rather than lines drawn around mm-hmm. concrete issues. So to that extent, I think it is a little misplaced, though I, I sympathize, right? I, I, I get it. Like, I've watched QP and been like, oh, geez. Like, I get it. It, is, it, can, be, it can be mind-numbing. Um, but I do think that there, there is a useful function to the adversarial nature of the House of Commons, mm-hmm. and I just don't think that that's recognized enough. And I've well, said this and, many and, times and, the But show, it's but... interesting you talk about the adversarial nature, because that's inherent in the Westminster system. Yes. Canada, Canada, by virtue of the Constitution Act of 1867, has inherited a system of governance, uh, or a sy- not necessarily of governance, a, a system of state institutions yeah. uh, from what is now the United Kingdom, then Great Britain, uh, that has reinforced a certain adversarial nature to our parliamentary system yeah. and and you're right you know we talk about the anecdotal the two sword lengths and sure. the, the, the mace and being dragged to the chair because former speakers you know used to lose their heads if they spoke out against the king and and such like that Has it's that never a, actually happened I'm pretty sure it hasn't. I don't think a speaker has <laughs> ever been executed. I don't think a speaker has ever been executed, but they, I know they have been imprisoned and jailed. Charles so. I famously came into the chamber looking for the four members. Who the had, five. Five, excuse me. Yes, your, your Civil War history is even better than mine. Um, and then the speaker, of course, he famous, to point them Well, out. he famously responded. It was Speaker Walpole who famously responded, uh, I have neither eyes to see nor tongue to speak, but which the House directs me. So yes, and then we had uh, Charles saying, "I see my birds have flown." And yes, stalked out of the chamber. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, very, you, should, you should really read some more history. It's, yeah, Jesus it's Christ, also a movie. Man. You can also just go see the movie too. <laughs> good uh, stuff. The, the civil, but, but that's that, that's the debate now in the Senate is that adversarial nature because we had a bicameral because we have a bicameral chamber or a bicameral parliament. So how much is the Senate to reflect or the the, the House? And when we had a bipolar house, a bipolar Senate, you know, two parties, government and opposition, whereas now we're much more multipolar because we have other groups at play. Uh, with, with the government effectively being represented by the three, is it? Yes. Three yeah. unaffiliated. Mm-hmm. There isn't, the, the dynamic is essentially broken yes. from the beginning because there isn't. A like government structurally, caucus. Yes. there's not yeah. a government caucus to defend that legislation, and the ISG is nebulous. The the government seeks out sponsors in the ISG. Yes. Do people just put up their hands for like who wants to sponsor well, okay. forty five? So I can uh, 
Senator Green, since becoming an ISG senator, and actually before when he was a, sat in the Conservative Caucus, sponsored a piece of government legislation. Something Both were fairly innocuous uh, tax treaties. The first one was with Israel and Taiwan and updating a tax treaty with Hong Kong. And then the second one was a tax treaty with Madagascar. They're both, both pieces of legislation were to avoid Canadians paying taxes twice, you know, depending where you're getting your income. Sure. The, the way that I've seen it from firsthand is that the government, um, leadership, Senator Harder's office reaches out to senators that they think have a background in the issue or who have sponsored. Like Senator Green sponsored, I think, four or five similar type legislations during the Harper government. So, you know, it was a natural fit to get him to do it. Uh, ultimately, it led to his change in affiliation, shall we say, uh, from conservative senator first to fully independent. And then eventually, because because the rules are set up, that in order to get on committees, you have to be part of a caucus or a group. Yeah. Uh, so he kind of had no choice uh, in order to continue to be the most effective senator he could be. Mm-hmm. So he joined the ISG. But uh, no, it's really, it's kind of funny, but it's not unlike how people used to think people became senators. The, the, the guy just looks at you and says, you. you know, uh, <laughs> the old joke was that, you know, Prime Ministers just would walk down and go, you, you, and you, you know, you're going to be senators. It's not accurate, but it's a, it's a nice little story. And it's, but it is very much a same kind of way. They, they, they do their homework a bit. They look at who are experts in the field and, and then they approach them and ask them, Hey, will you sponsor it? Now, it's very interesting. We've had some sponsors who obviously fully believed in their bill and got totally, I would call down a rabbit hole in terms of, yeah, 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 like, and then we've had some sponsors that were like, okay, I'll bring it forward, but I don't necessarily agree with everything, and I'm going to move amendments of my own. Uh, Senator Larry Campbell on C7, which was to deal with the um, RCMP and collective bargaining, or the potential of collective bargaining uh, within the force, he sponsored it at second reading, and then when it got to committee, he, or third reading, he moved a number of amendments, I believe, <laughs> if memory serves me well. Amendments that I mentioned were not the... So this is something that's often the case. Um, There's a lot of discussion around record numbers of amendments. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in sort of... In the example of C45, for instance, a lot of the amendments are basically government amendments being handed through the sponsor. Mm -hmm. So they often look like the ISG or the Senate broadly is amending bills substantively more than they actually are. Yeah. And so filtering through that is almost an impossible task. If you you read the clause by clause, they will explicitly say, like, this was something the government recommended. Yes. Often, like, not always. Often, not always. Obliged to. So so I've never liked the idea of just looking at the pure quantity of amendments. So I think somebody posted on social media that it was something like 46 bills got amended or something out of the 100 and whatever that went through. Which is a fairly high number when you think about it. However, you then have to break it down. How many were technical? Yeah. Uh, you know, or consequential. Or, right? so or you know, they changed it. They, 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 they caught something along the way after hearing something at committee. And they, they, they wanted to tighten the language up or clarify something. Yeah, sure. So there's obviously a number of those. You know my pet peeve is about Senate amendments? What? The phrase consequential amendment. Uh, yes. You hear consequential <laughs> amendment, you think, oh, it's an amendment that is consequential, so it must be important. Of, of it's consequence. Like, actually, no. no it's, it's just an amendment you have to make because you made you another made, You made the other one, yes. Yeah. yeah, that's always the Three fun thing. Three for a loop the first time. Yes, sure. yeah. Um, the other thing, too, is, and I don't want to cash aspersions on, on the very professional public service that Canada has, but we've seen a number of bills come from the Commons without the right parchments. Uh, famously, one Sorry, of the f- when you say parchments. So, best example, one of the first supply bills. So, the essentially the Appropriation Act to pay everybody that works in the government of Canada came without the actual numbers. To be fair, we're not very good at that in this government. <laughs> they, they 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 came with it. It came with the introductory clauses, like you know, a royal recommendation, and that we. The, the government, you know, the, the government seeks the authorization to spend this money. But then when you looked at the schedule to see how much they were going to spend, it wasn't there. Oh, good. The, so a message was sent back to the commons and we kind of looked the other way and slid the new bill in as the old bill. Yeah. And, but, and, but there were a number of cases where we would get the messages from the commons. And again, it's a high pressure environment and 
then we would get a second message saying, oops, we sent you the wrong version. One time we got the second re- reading version of a bill. We didn't get a bill as amended. Post a comment so that you recall the email message. <laughs> it's a, yeah. uh, it, I'm, I'm sure my uh, my friend Charles Robert, who's now the clerk of the House of Commons, if he listens to this, is I'm going to get a lovely email from him. Oh, I hope he does. That'd um, be awesome. But uh, anyway, there's very... There's that, so you've got to wonder about the. If there's so many technical amendments, you've got to wonder about the quality of the drafting. Again, sure. I'm not casting dispersions on on the, the professional public service that we have, but at the same time, there is a political implications to this and what they yeah. want to do. And oh, the other thing I would say is the size and scope of legislation. Legislation used to be when I first started on the Hill. Legislation, you'd be you'd you'd laugh if a if a bill was more than 100 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying this as a critique against omnibus bills. This is more just even subject matter bills would be fairly short because the idea was that a lot was left to the regulation and interpretation. The bill was only basically a list of what you could and couldn't do. How you did it was developed later in the process. Sure. Whereas now, uh, the bills have gone from what I would call descriptive to prescriptive in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. C45 being a perfect example. But again, it's a new territory. So I understand in some ways that that's going to be the new norm. Yeah, often the regs seem to be shorter than the bills themselves. Yes. Where in the past it might it, have been the reverse. Absolutely. The other thing too is, and I'm sure anybody who has worked in leadership in either chamber for either party uh, when they're in government will tell you that the number of bills that are tweaked or amended before they're even introduced, thanks to the National Caucus, you know, uh, a minister might go before National Caucus and say, we're going to be bringing this forward in a few weeks or whatever, we're in the final stages. And, you know, a caucus member, a senator might, who's got that long experience in that history in that field might get up and say, you know, minister, have you thought about this? And so then, the minister may go back to his officials and the drafters and say, this was raised. Have we covered this? And then, so it almost preempts some of the, the amendments that might actually happen further down the line, mm-hmm. which rightly or wrongly, I don't think we're benefiting from right now because again, there is no government caucus in the Senate. There's no formal link for them to, to sit and, and have a, you know, a kind of a, get the ear of the minister to alert them to something before it's even brought forward. So, yeah, just look at the 46 or whatever it is. I, I, I've never been a... Yeah, it just re- reminded me of the, uh, the MCAC process, which mm. you might remember from the Harper years. Members Caucus Advisory Committee. Committee. Yeah. Uh, which which was we've discussed on the show before, too, I believe. Yeah. Episode 2. Yeah, yeah. probably. Um, which is where... Ministers were expected, if not obliged, to consult a group, often the committee members of the committee that who had, who had an interest or an expertise yeah. uh, due to their background in that field before bringing forward legislation. And I, and, uh, in conjunction with eventually presenting it to national and I, and I think that would um, now that may still be happening in terms of the liberal government may have those with with MPs. I don't know. I don't look into the national the liberal I, national caucus. I, I don't believe that they have a comparable uh, mechanism to the to the MCAC process. But uh, you know, at the very least, I can tell you there are no senators on any of those now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that um, is fair. So one thing that was sort of the Senate got some heat over was uh, the end of and we sort of touched on this very briefly. Right? It was the end of session and uh, well, the end of the parliament and. Or, Basically, the end of the Parliament. But the and, NAFTA week is yeah, coming. Yeah, I know up. the NAFTA <laughs> week is coming. Um, <laughs> Who knows? But the private members' bill yes. that died in the order paper, including Bill 262, including Ronna Ambrose's uh, private members' bill. Yes. Yeah, I had forgotten the numbers, so thank you. <laughs> and a handful of others. Our bill that we've talked about before about wood procurement. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sponsored is, by Senator Griffin in the Senate. Oh, there you go. Um, and I think, you know, you, as you've said a couple times, the Senate did end up passing all the government legislation, and but did not pass the PMBs. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that those, in terms of the, the principle of the thing, are kind of more expendable? I think... Well... Like, I think that's a defensible position. Yes. I'm just curious... Uh, On the surface, when you're, when you're differentiating between private members' bills and government bills... Obviously, I would put emphasis always on government legislation. And I think like democracy would require you to yes. do so. Yeah. The question is, at to what point do you talk about democracy when it comes to the PMBs? Because mm-hmm. obviously, the PMBs that end up in the Senate have been passed by the House of Commons. Yeah. 
Um, you know, a majority of members of the other place, as we call it, uh, have saw fit to send us this piece of legislation. The trick, though, is when you talk about democracy and the rights of the commons, with few exceptions, the Senate has the exact same rights. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's some things to do with appropriations and taxes and stuff that we're barred from because we're not, the senators are not elected. So it, it speaks to what do you define as democracy? Is it only electoral democracy or is it constitutional democracy? Uh, senators exist on the basis of constitutional democracy. They're there to hold uphold the rule of law, protect and preserve the Constitution. I know those are kind of American concepts, but the, the terminology is apt. So when members of parliament pass their, get their colleagues to pass their bills, and I would argue that most PM, it's very rare that PMBs even get to the Senate. Yeah. Uh, Traditionally, because of how long the process, because of the process, the lottery process, and as well, you know, if the government's not on board and it's, it's a majority pass, government, the House of Commons, yeah, period, it's, right? yeah. Like it's, so, and there was a num a record number, I think, that actually got to the Senate this year. Yeah, the trick is though, these are not. We don't know where they're coming from. Government bills conceivably come from the manifesto of the government party when sure. they they went and met the people. They said, "This is what we want to do." Presumably, that's what Canadians voted on. Now, we can discuss what Canadians actually think when they go into the voters' screen, but that's a whole... Sure. That that would be a podcast in itself. <laughs> and it, I'm sure... I think it has been. Uh, so, but PMBs, however laudable they are, mm -hmm. we don't know where they're coming from in the Senate. Well, there's, there's no... It could be a pet project. PMBs run the gambit from... Uh, Renaming you renaming know. a day to something, you know, Lincoln Alexander Day or the Pope John Fiddler's Paul Day. Yeah, we have a National yeah. Fiddler's Day or Pope John Paul II Day to very large policy discussions. Uh, a couple that have passed in the past, uh, I'm thinking back to the Harper days, are things like 377, which dealt with um, disclosure of union uh, expenses right. and such. Yeah. Um, you know, that was a private member's bill. It was supported by the government, but at the end of the day, it was still a private member's bill. 262 is another private member's bill supported by the government. Mm -hmm. Although I would, I do know that originally they said it was not workable and then they changed their mind, it seems. I, I think the chatter about that has been mostly that they sent it to the Senate to die. Uh, and, and, and then yet made hay about the fact that the oh, Senate yeah, wasn't, well, I mean, of course, you know, the, Senate, your, the Senate is everybody's favorite whipping Why have your cake when you can also eat it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you know. promise to adopt it as legislation yes. in their new mandate, which of course they, they could not have done in the last five years. So Just, just a defensive <laughs> process here. I, I think there are some notable examples, particularly notable examples in June, uh, of where the or where the government was concerned about legislation, PMB legislation passing, so it took that and put it into government legislation. Yes, in Senate committee. Yes, uh, of the Fisheries Act. Yes, uh, and they did that with two bills. Um, the the somewhat humorous part is, I guess, to your consequential amendments, mm -hmm. is that some of the amendments to sixty eight were consequential on the fact that two S two or three had to pass. Right. Yes. Yes. So they got they became linked, which is a captive. Which, which yes, yeah, yeah, the citations, and it, so it made a very interesting case. The now, but speaking purely to the PMBs, again, they run the gambit from name re, renaming electoral district to yeah. a major a major shift in in law, like UNDRIP uh, yeah. two six two, or they speak to uh, people had issues with. Um, Ron Ambrose's bill on judicial on what impact would it have on judicial independence. Speaking of three three seven, it's it's interesting because Senator Delphal uh, moved a number of amendments in committee. The result of which means that if we were to even a deal with that bill and if we were to adopt it, we would send it back with the amendments because the. The word it has to be word for word. Both chambers have to yeah. pass the exact same word for word. And, and there's not time. And there will a comments. not just that. Oh, Tim, do you want to ask what conference committee? There was there there was no no sponsor because we were told. Um, I'll take you back to C two ten, which I, if the number is right, was the O Canada bill to change. Ah, right, yeah. Uh, Mario Belanger's uh, bill, which I think nobody dis disagreed with in principle. There were some quibbles over the language. 
But when I mean, uh, isn't that disagreement with <laughs> principle at that point? <laughs> with, 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 a, with a certain senator who was formerly a plumber had stated that he was going to move an amendment, the sponsor of the bill in the Senate got up and explained that had an amendment been, been moved and adopted by the Senate and the bill returned to the Commons, it would effectively die because there was the sponsor unfortunately had passed away and there was no more sponsor of record. So it would take unanimous consent or a special provision for it to be put back on the order paper for consideration within the lottery. So conceivably, the same would have been true for 337 because Ms. Ambrose was no longer a member of parliament. Mm. So that was an added complication that I don't know if everybody thought through um, when it comes to PMB. So there was a lot of balls in the air when it came to the various... PMBs, including uh, one moved by Conservative Senator uh, um, S228, which was to restrict marketing on uh, 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 Nancy, Nancy Green Reigns, yeah, yeah, to restrict mar- marketing to children. Um, so I think the Senate has done its duty and in, in its, in its sober second thought in dealing with government legislation. Again, there because there is more or less an electoral mandate from that, yeah. it, it's much more consequential. Not to use the consequential in the sense of the Senate See, uses it, but yeah. it's much more consequential legislation than as opposed to PMBs. That doesn't mean PMBs are, the, you know, the, the policy approach is any less, but it's... The sure. other element I would add to this discussion, differentiating uh, PMBs, Senate public bills from government legislation, is who the drafters of the legislation are That's and true. how well drafted they are. Yeah. Uh, PMBs, Senate public bills, generally drafted by a journals branch. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to Department of Justice yes. and specialized drafters. And, and, and then the and resources. The, and that gets and vetted by the line department and yeah. central machinery of government. And, yeah. yes. and so the likelihood of error in PMBs is substantially greater. And what I, follows from that can is. Can I also just talk about how much I love that the Senate PMBs are called public bills? Yes. It's just like you guys had to just do that British thing where they have to just <laughs> name things, the things that they aren't. and well they, well, they are because they, they, they affect the public interest versus right, private much, bills. Much like which, public schools in the, in the UK, which <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a. But yeah, you're right. And, you know, in this in the Senate uh, Senate public bills are drafted by the law clerk, and, and obviously they work with the, the yeah. senator, and they the law clerk tries to do their best. And we've had some great law clerks. It's a very collaborative process. It, it is, uh, but the, well. the, you're right. It's not doesn't come with the full backing and the full. You know, Resources. bigger picture view that the government that the government of Canada would have, and and that's just a reality. It's always going to be that reality, unless there's some dramatic, unless we start farming out the drafting of PMBs and and, and such to justice, which then we're getting into crown prerogatives. Yeah, that's a very and, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah, So there's a conflict of interest for, for the commissioner. <laughs> start looking there. Um, yeah, I think that's that's good for me. I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground. We, we've just hit an hour, so okay. that's, yeah. a, that's thank, pretty good. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I think this was a great conversation. Well, thank you How for having me. How was the uh, new Senate chamber? They figured out the oh, curtain, yeah. the sound. Okay, so yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, if we do want to take a second to talk about the technicalities of our new building. It's a lovely building, actually, to be honest. Um, I was in West Block this morning for something, and I like our building much more. It feels like the conference center at the Four Seasons over in West Block a little bit. Um, the, the, the Not weird, a lot of character to yeah, it. Yeah, although that's a heritage building, and you would think have the, the chamber itself you is very think. the chamber itself because it's inside and it's it's a room inside a room inside of a courtyard. Yeah, so it feels really <laughs> weird. Yes, um, our biggest thing uh, was we 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 well first our although we're the same square footage, you know, we have the same desks and everything. The ceiling is quite a bit lower, so there's there's more sound refraction. Plus, uh, the originally they did not extend the walls all the way up to help <laughs> airflow to come over the the archways, and that obviously caused a, a bleeding of sound. But the the building itself is is beautiful. My only uh, gripe, if it's an unpopular opinion, is every door is a swipe door. Hmm. So once you get in the building, can't go anywhere. You can't go anywhere. Uh, and that includes members of the public that are coming to watch the deliberations. So, you know, that's, you know, people poo-poo on the fact that we had those ushers. But at the same time, I found a pair of people that had left the gallery and took a wrong turn because they went through the only door they could get through, which happened to be the fire escape. Ah, uh, that always happens. And, fire escapes, we'll get stuck I, in the I've, I've done that in this building. And, yeah. and because the door that they needed to go through to get out back to the main entrance... 
because it went through the library branch and oh, the cafeteria Jesus. there. Because we don't have hallways, we have galleries, like like in the British palace systems. Of course. Just because it's just the way the building was set up. The building wasn't intended for what it's being and used for as. Those, for those of you unfamiliar with Ottawa's uh, sort of parliamentary precinct geography, the new Senate building is the old Ottawa train station, yes. which is more recently the government conference center. Mm-hmm. And, and they've done a lovely job of. They've added committee rooms. They've 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 built it. They've built up. Uh, but again, it was originally designed when we had two parties, and now we have a government, an opposition, a third group, and a fourth group. So we're we've shoehorned as much as we can in. But you know, people are on top of each other. And the strangest thing is, there's no cafeteria in that building in the summer, and there's no cafeteria in East Block in the summer. So huh. senators and their staff don't get fed in the summer. <laughs> well. You've got the you got the Rideau Center. You got, yeah. got the Chipotle. Yeah, the yeah. yeah, at least we're true. fairly close. Yeah, very, very close to the Chipotle. And and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to tell you, but yes, we do have a tunnel to the Chateau Laurier. Yeah. So we can sneak away to Zoe's or to or to Wilfred's, but oh, you know, you do that enough, it you. you it's, it's the, you get you it's get really, the railroad hotel. Of course, it has to be linked to the. That makes a lot you, of you get really your your wallet gets a lot lighter than you do. <laughs> yes, that is fair. Uh, Chris, once again, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, where can people find you on Twitter if they want to get more insights into the Senate? So, two, I'm known for two things, and one is my love of the history of Parliament that's, and such. That's how we came across it. Yeah. Uh, the other is my outlet because politics is very serious uh, vocation. Is I am a bit of a Disney uh, fan, borderline freak uh, i'm actually off to hong kong disneyland in two weeks or three oh, weeks i didn't even know they had one and i've already been to the one in california in january and i'm going to the one my post-election uh holiday is going to be the one in florida for the uh, food and wine festival so and quick thoughts on the live action mulan trailer uh to be honest i've never even seen the animated mulan because i was too wow. old by that point this guy didn't, um, actually, didn't even get the Szechuan sauce. but however <laughs> i'm very much looking forward to the lion king but i will be in taipei on a mandarin language course so i'll have to go find an english language cinema i guess but uh answer your question my twitter handle is at disney tory there we go fair uh, and of course, we are at Short Pants Pod. Uh, if anyone who listens to this podcast doesn't already follow us on Twitter, which would actually kind of surprise me, um, to be honest. And you can rate and review us on iTunes, etc., wherever you may find your, your fine podcasts. Um, I guess that will do it for us this week. Very Thank good. you uh, once again for listening, as always. And we bid you adieu.